Mick, great to see you. Um, we are picking up from a conversation we've been having for a little while, and, and it was all about us first meeting. Richmond from Richmond. Weird, eh? <laughs> Couldn't get my head around it. I didn't know whether, Rich, you were telling me that that's where you lived or that's where you're from. I mean, I know Richmond well, played rugby there for a number of years, still continue to frequent the place. My favourite, one of my favourite coffee shops, not my favourite coffee shop, but Kiss the Hippo, we might get some freebies, you never know. Um, beautiful coffee, great roasters, make a fantastic bun as well. Cinnamon and uh, um, pecan is my favourite. But yeah, I, I, you just completely phased me. I didn't know whether it was your name, whether it was the place you grew up. I mean, and, and you did at that time live there, yeah? That's right. Yeah, I did. I did. I was coming from Richmond. And, and I think, I mean, my first recollection of, of meeting you, not seeing you, meeting you was, um, I don't know if it's the same for you, was uh, the um, lecture hall uh, guys. Yeah, yeah I, I remember it well. So, um, you know, fantastic place to ply your trade for a little while, which I was lucky enough to do for quite a while, actually. Um, yeah, and just, you know, and it's not um, demeaning, obviously, yourself and, and our friendship, Rich, um, which we have to declare we have, as well as the other relationships we have. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I was lucky enough to have a procession of really intelligent, keen people just like yourself going through that place, both at undergrad and postgrad. It was um, a place dear to my heart because of the people yeah. um, that, that really sort of flowed their way through on their own journeys um, through that place. And, you know, many of which I'm you know, happy enough to call my friends and delighted to call my friends and, and really lucky enough to, have them still want to talk to me and have something to do with me. Yeah. And I mean, in, in particular yourself, you're always very generous about how you speak or, or make reference to me. Um, and I'm really grateful to that, to you for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, essentially I do blame you for sort of everything that's happened over the last 20, 20 years, isn't it? More or less. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, we maybe should unpack what I am to blame for and what I'm not to unblame, what I'm not to blame for. Yeah, no, that would be good. I mean, I, I'm using the word blame. Um, uh, people might sort of think the word blame is negative, but actually it's it's been an incredible, incredible journey. Um, and um, and so, you know, moving on from that, that, that first meeting where, where I can still, I still remember you presented these these kind of four concepts of or different concepts of pain the different things that we might see and there was there was just this moment where i was like oh my god that's that really that makes sense that really makes sense for for the first time and and that's obviously when i was like oh, i've got a i've got a chat to this guy this is this is fantastic and on it went from there but your interest in pain was stems way back before then yeah i mean you know i now realize i wasn't dealing with or interested in pain per se because it was nociception but yeah I, I did this weird um, what seems weird A level now um, I think people still do A levels don't they um, I think so but yeah. but yeah you know and I, I did anyway old A levels I'm that old 
And I did a thing called Nuffield Biology. And the great thing about Nuffield Biology is that taught component, but it also relied on, um, in, in my case, two experiments um, that you had to do, perform, write up to teach you the scientific method. And, and you know, and I go back to that sort of experience a lot. I had two fantastic um, biology teachers. And Andy Brolewski was just one of those incredible humans you meet. He was a fantastic teacher, a lovely human being, um, a fantastic sportsman as well across several sports. There's nothing he liked more than to really lay into me on the rugby pitch at any opportunity he could. Um, I doubled in the game a little bit back then. And... Um, and uh, yeah, and, and Fred Green, who was, who was a lovely man as well, but probably wasn't the most talented sportsman. He actually was about five foot one and um, and a little bit chubby, shall we say. Anyway, they, they were great teachers and they got me into science and I learned an enormous amount from both of them. Both of them had done, you know, proper science uh, PhDs before they became teachers. And they really sort of gave us a great grounding. Anyway, I did, um, I, I looked at, zapping wood lice and, and dragonflies which gave me a lifelong passion for both of those insects particularly dragonflies and people who know me well know that I'm a bit of a dragonfly nerd um, and I still you know love to go and look at them and I built a pond in my back garden you know around the corner from where you used to live Rich yeah, before yeah. you went out and um, you know got yourself out in the countryside and um yeah, I, I, I basically looked at certain fairly routine and set behaviours in both of those insects and then looked at what the effect of giving them a nociceptive experience was um, by giving them a little electric shock and um, looked to see whether we altered that behaviour or not. I was lucky enough to do reasonably well and um, got a summer scholarship to, to Oxford University to go and visit the world authority as he was then on dragonflies so i was wow. pretty lucky gave yeah. me a bit of an experience in science probably tempted me down the dark side of sort of doing basic science degree um but but i decided to stick with my original plan of becoming a physiotherapist so mm -hmm. yeah but those were you into science before or was it the teachers you think who saw something in you and then encouraged you uh, yeah, I, I mean, maybe you have heard the stories, Rich, or not, but um, I mean, you certainly have heard me crowing on about being a working class lad who grew up in a in a sort of a typical working class environment. Um, I was the first person to go to university. Um, but yeah, as a quiet boy, which some people might not really um, imagine is possible, but I like to spend time in my own company reading. I love reading. My granddad, my paternal grandfather, gave me a love of reading. Um, and I read uh, voraciously. I read everything. I read, you know, my brother and sister were older than me. I read every book they brought home from school before I went to school. I read and read and read. And I particularly was keen on bird watching as well as a kid and, and you know, learning everything I could about birds and and from that, you know, I, I, I liked particularly more geeky bird books, not the sort of thing you get off the normal shelf, the things that would tell you what fauna and flora and, you know, give you the classification of the bird. And I'd learn all that Latin and I enjoyed doing Latin at school. Um, 
so yeah it's a natural progression into more and more science and and obviously had that experience at school um knocked around playing a bit of rugby and a bit of cricket and then went off to university and was lucky enough to sort of find myself in Tim Watson's professor Tim Watson who I know you know um who lots of people sort of think of as Mr Electrotherapy but Tim was a was one of the most free thinking deep thinking scientifically sound physiotherapist not just of his day but still today um and you know Tim used to spot talents in people very well that was one of his great talents and he really nurtured that sort of interest in me and I always knew I'd probably go down the route of academic physiotherapy after I'd sort of tried my best to be a very good clinical physiotherapist so yeah that's sort of in part my journey um, and then it went on from there really. Well what was it about Tim then that, that particularly attracted you to that kind of way of thinking? I think he just allowed you to ask questions and rather than rubbishing things he made you he made you find a reason why you didn't think something was a good idea so he was happy for you to disagree but you had to defend your position of disagreement in the fullest possible sense so he embraced it he welcomed it but it wasn't the sort of thing I think you get now where people make these throwaway single liners like it's not evidence-based or mm -hmm. have you got proof of that or you do this or whatever, you know, it, it wasn't anything about that. It was about go away, look at a topic and then come back and present your position. And sometimes that's what happened. You know, I distinctly remember him in a couple of lectures saying, we don't have time to discuss it today. And, you know, my more cynical side, young Bolchy, dickhead would be going... <laughs> Uh, we'll probably never get to revisit this conversation then great tactic he's getting me out the door and behold two weeks later as he told me probably calling my bluff or thinking he was going to call my bluff you know he brings it up as the start of the lecture the lecture wasn't anything to do with that we go and visit straight revisit exactly the conversation he told me he was going to have now luckily enough i had prepared and i had gone away and looked at things because as you know me well that, that is what makes me tick. Um, and we had a fantastic discussion. I'm not sure the rest of the group, my peer group, particularly enjoyed it, but I think he and I did. <laughs> um, and I realise that probably sounds pompous, dickish thing to say, but but I think it was true. You know, I think we both had a, had a you know a good hour or two in that room, and um, there were lots of incidents of that. But he wasn't the only one we lucky enough to um, have had the late um, Paul Standing was was the vice principal when I first joined college. He was one of the first people to do a proper MSc. What I mean by that is outside of physiotherapy. Um, PhDs in that day and in those days in our profession were very, very few and far between. Um, and in fact, Tim was one of the first people to go on to do a PhD. But Paul Standing had done a sort of a bioengineering uh, master's degree is another great human being a real questioner a real enabler facilitator of, of yeah someone like myself who went there um if i can say not to just train to be a physiotherapist but to look deeply into what i was going to spend the rest of my life doing yeah yeah i mean th these are some seriously big players in that sense then aren't they 
Yeah, I've, I, look, I've been lucky. My old career has been littered by meeting, working with, collaborating with, um, contacting, making contact with, being given the air by some incredible people. You know, I always joke, but in some cases, probably not a joke. You know, people who, who some people from their field would chew their left arm off to, to go and work with. And, you know, people like Pat Wall, Steve McMahon, Steve Thompson, you know, more latterly Andy Clark, all those sort of guys, you know, Julian Kyverstein and Michael Kirkhoff have just finished a paper with, um, you know, but other people I've spent a bit of time in the company of, you know, Matt Howard at the IOP, um, Steve Williams at the IOP, Ekaterina Fotopoulou, someone else I know, you know, she, she passed through the IOP during those sort of pain days. Um, just some incredible people who who've listened to me and then obviously people my name very strongly connected with and I'm very proud to have my name connected with in the profession people like um, Louis Gifford, mm -hmm. Dave Butler, Laura Mosley. I'm proud that they're not just people I've collaborated and worked with but they're people who have become you know really good friends you know amongst my best friends in the world um you know, and, and I've been so lucky to work with all of those people. And, and really, my two talents are I'm prepared to stick my neck out and like an idiot. <laughs> uh, and, and that's the beginning of my second talent. I'm prepared to look an idiot in front of really clever people. And you could say that's stupidity or bravery or whatever you want. But, but, but those have been my motivations. And yes... On a more serious level, I'd be motivated to demonstrate that someone coming from my background, both as a working class lad, you know, first educated in his family, as one of the sort of earlier physios to go into a sort of a, a lab-based sort of environment from a from a PhD point of view, and then to try and open the doors. That's what I've hopefully done: is opened a few doors, pushed a few doors open. And then hopefully dragged a few people, in some cases, kicking and screaming through the same set of doors. And in many cases, thankfully, they've come running through. And if I have done that, if I have, and I'm not fishing for you to, to say anything, Rich, because I know you probably say kind things to me or about me. Um, if I've done that, I can, I can clear off to do whatever I want to do next. Really, you know, happy. And, mm. and I am, you know, I am happy. Well, that's kind of the legacy question, isn't it? And it's it's an ongoing thing. And, um, you know, you, you've mentioned the names of, of all sorts of, of fascinating people who have made terrific contributions. And I, I'm not sure it is luck. I, th I think it's you're open to it. You know, you you put yourself in that position. As you said, you're you're willing to be there with those people and and put your idea forward say your thing and be prepared to be wrong or, or whatever and that's just opened up a channel of communication yeah and believe you me i've been more wrong than i've been right and i continue to be more wrong than i am right and i shall continue to be more wrong than i am right <laughs> <laughs> if i'm if it done off kill me but um yeah it's, it's a really weird thing because it's a difficult thing to talk about um, 
about what you might have done and that word legacy you know you you use that that's a sort of when you use that sort of probably you because we can see each other i sort of sit back in my chair and think christ this, have i got a legacy you know <laughs> it's really important to have a legacy you know i've got two legs but <laughs> legacy i'm not i'm not entirely sure about but yeah but but if you if you were really asking me uh to look very deeply at myself and sort of say, what is it about you, Mick, that, that has enabled all of that? I really can't get past the fact that when I want to pursue something, I have to do it as well as I possibly can. And in some cases, that's finding out information from the very best people. And I do, I suppose, have the minerals, whatever the right term is, to to approach them in whatever way. Um, and one of the most remarkable things is all of those names I've given you, and, and it's very kind of you not to say the names you dropped into our conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's very kind of you not to say that. But But all of those people have been the most welcoming, lovely, kind, yeah, um, really, I can't even find the right word. I'm actually getting quite emotional because I, I, I've got a deep affection for all of those people and many others that I've not mentioned. Yeah, I've not even given a, a, any of the names of, of students, which I've learned just as much from, including yourself and the people, your peers, when you did the Masters at, at King's, and all the people who went before on that course in particular and all the people after. You know, some great names, you know, people who are really beginning to set the world alight and people like Jackie Willombe. I mean, you know, real stars, Morton Hogue, yourself. I've got a I've got a list that just continues. And and, and actually as well, people like Professor Margarita Calvo and, and Margarita's back in Chile now and, and and, you know, and really important in our own country in our own right and one of the huge talents that that sort of graced me with a presence for a period of time and yeah it's a sort of incredible incredible journey an incredible list of people and I'd love somehow if it was ever possible to just organize something that brought some some of some of those people are no longer with us obviously um but some of those people together um in whatever medium, maybe actually this weird sort of new world we live in where you can get 20 people up on your computer screen, maybe it's a way of starting to do that. Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe you've inspired a second person who's appeared on your podcast to start a podcast. Ah, yeah. yeah what would you okay. call it? Um, oh, I, I suppose... Um, Puddling, um, probably not. Pottering, definitely. Pottering. Potterings with Mick. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, growing up, there was nothing more special to me than watching Jack Hargreaves on his TV programme in his potting shed. Now, you may remember Jack Hargreaves, if you do at all, Rich, as one of the people on OW, the TV programme. OW. No, but I don't. I don't remember. Jack Hargreaves hmm. was somebody who um, uh, had his own TV program. In fact, he had several. 
and he's just you know he had a big grey beard something that obviously I find attractive in a man yeah um, and I've won myself um, <laughs> and um, and he just smoked a pipe something else I find attractive in a man and occasionally dabble in with myself um, and and was actually not from the country but wanted to live his life in the country and and spent a lot of time there and was a very good fisherman of which I partake in yeah. and, um, collected things like ratting sticks and poles and all sorts of things in his shed and made what was really quite simple programs about all of these things and they didn't often feature other characters but it was a fantastic tv program um and i would advise any of you to look it up on youtube jack argreaves fantastic jack but he himself actually was was the townie originally and i had this sort of growing up um you know as this working class lad who spent most of my days all my days really in in the city of lincoln where i grew up yeah. but my maternal grandparents uncles etc all farmers in lincolnshire so had this sort of strong, deep affection for sort of the countryside and being outside and working the land. And yeah, I suppose I always joke with everyone, although it's not really a joke, is that that's the sort of place I'd like to spend a few more years of my life. Not Lincolnshire, but out in the country and doing all of those things with yeah. with my family and Otto, my dog. So did, did you, you used to get your hands dirty then? You, you're in you're in the earth. Yeah, I spent um, all of my summer holidays where I wasn't on sort of rugby training camps and stuff, getting ready for the next rugby season. Yeah, working on a dairy farm. Um, yeah, an old friend of mine's sort of brother-in-law had a dairy farm. Um, first one was down in Halford West in, um, in Wales, and then he went uh, just outside Lanson in Cornwall. Um, and yeah, so I was lucky enough to work on those dairy farms and getting my hands really dirty and driving mm. tractors. And yeah, if you've ever been on a dairy farm, I mean, obviously you conjure up this image of milk, but actually you should conjure up an image of shite. You know, it's, it's everywhere. And at the end of milking, you've just basically, my job was to shovel that shite down a big sort of, you know, um, sluice without falling in. Um, which is a really dangerous thing to do. In fact, yeah. most likely to kill you. So, mm. yeah, be careful if you're ever on a dairy farm. <laughs> so, okay, so when and then you when you weren't on the farm at that that time, it was it was rugger. It was egg chasing. Yeah, I played a bit, and um, I and I really everyone will smile because they say, yeah, I don't really want to talk about it, and then they'll go, oh, he does really. No, I don't really want to talk about it because because I think it's so long time ago now. You know, I think I made you suffer in the past all the stories, but it's such a long time ago now. And and most importantly, it's such a different game now to what it was then. Yeah. You know, at five foot eight and yeah, around sort of 15 and a half stone at, at my peak of fitness. And uh, and I, I was fit once upon a time, Rich, I promise you. Yeah, yeah no. Um, I um, I played hooker. Um, I started off a prop and then moved to hooker because I was never going to be big enough to be a prop. But but like in today's game, I, I I wouldn't get in anywhere, would I? You know, there's no position at five foot eight and fifteen stone that you could you could dream mm -hmm. of. I know there's the odd player, but you know, front row forwards now 
are just this huge physical type and um yeah i and that's why i'm probably not going to talk too much about rugby with you i love the game still you know i've been lucky enough to have some involvement um both playing and then in terms of sort of uh, being a physio for a couple of sort of select teams and then doing some consultancy for the rugby football union um, all of which I've really enjoyed but it is it is such a different game that I don't feel I have any sort of um, validity to talk about it um, anymore you know from a from a personal first person perspective of playing it yeah so long ago yeah you know, oddly enough cricket I probably played quite a bit of cricket as well um had aspirations of making it at both games and yeah wasn't good enough <laughs> certainly at cricket that's always the bottom line isn't it and I've, i mean i've i've heard you talk about rugby a fair bit and and sort of more of a doff of the hat to to cricket and and the odd reference to you know, um, uh, a straight drive or, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I, I was clean-bowled by Malcolm Marshall, let's put it that way, out of three <laughs> balls. And that was that was, some, that was some experience. So the story is, and, and you've sucked me into one story, and then it begins and ends. and Because and, my family are going to listen to this and just groan, and, <laughs> and I'll not live it down for a year. Then. I went out to bat... Um, in a game, representative game, and Malcolm Marshall was bowling. Uh, if you don't know who he is, Google him. If you don't know who he is, you don't really know about cricket. He was pretty quick. I, I could play the game reasonably, but he bowled to me first ball, didn't see it at all. Not not a thing, not, not <laughs> anything. Not anything that you are supposed to do as a batsman let me start again. I did all of those things you're supposed to do as a batsman to be able to see the ball. Yeah. And I didn't see the ball. Right? <laughs> so that's worrying. So, so anyway, no damage done. He didn't hit me. I certainly didn't hit it. It didn't hit my wickets. I'm still in. If you don't know about cricket, this is a good thing. <laughs> Second ball, it was a bit quicker. I know that by the noise it made. Did I see it? No, I didn't see it again was I intact yes I was was the stumps intact yes I was same scenario I'm still in marvellous I've survived two balls the third ball I didn't see it I heard it even louder and then I heard that fantastic sort of sound of leather on willow <laughs> and I decided I was going to play a shot which was a straight drive but I didn't play a straight drive where the ball was and the sound of leather on willow was my middle stump cartwheeling back. And at that point, Rich, you'll get this. I went into the zone, you know, I, I, I got into the zone at that point as I looked behind and my middle stump was cartwheeling in slow motion backwards. A beautiful thing. Bales flying off in two different directions. And it, and it was going on at about three miles an hour. Yeah. And that's pointless in cricket, eh? If if you, if what was going on in front of you before the wickets had gone was at that pace, that'd have been a good thing. But no, this was um, it's a lasting memory. And um, you know, I tried all the usual things before I walked off. I gave the pitch a little jab to suggest it might have caught something. You know, I knew enough about the game to sort of do that sort of blink 
a bit as though I might have had a fly in my eye. <laughs> yeah. Did all the other things and and there were some there were some good players and I won't name drop by you there. And they just looked at me and and to a man they were just looking at me, shaking their head. And basically they were welcoming me back in to tell me my cricket career had ended there and then. Oh. That was going to be the end of it. Anyway, so I thought, come to college, play at a lower standard. And um, the first game I played down here, you know, down here being in the Middlesex League, lo and behold, I look across and who's the bloke running in to bowl against me? It's Wayne Daniels. Again, <laughs> if you don't know about <laughs> You know, it just so happens to be about two miles an hour slower than um, Malcolm Marshall, but from the West Indies, played test cricket as well. Yeah, and 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 the same thing happened to me, you know. So so really, uh, yeah, I should have given up and I played on for a little while, but I wasn't good enough. But my excuse is I didn't know at the time I had an eye problem, which those uh, of you who know me well know that I yeah that was the beginning of it. Yeah, <laughs> one diagnosed for another ten years, yeah. but it was the beginning of it. That was definitely the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, yeah, just so for the yeah. record, though, how, how, what, what era was this in terms of Malcolm Marshall? What, how? Yeah, it know? was, um, it was late eighties. Okay, so yeah, so you know, that's, yeah, was that's, it, yeah, it was late 80s. I shouldn't say yeah. 90s. Yeah, so, so around, you know, that's, that's you know, he was well established then. It wasn't like... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he could play the game and I couldn't. That's, just, that's it, what we learned from that. That's right. I, even now, I remember playing at, um, at Hove and I, I'm racking my brain to the... He was an ex-Aussie player, um, but, but well retired. He, he was, I'm sure, in his late 40s early 50s and I went out to bat and, and he was just coming off a few yards but had been a you know an Aussie test quick and um you know it's like straight straight, straight past your nose yeah it's, it's just a another class another you know yeah I mean you know look I mean in the in the team that I was playing for then um yeah I was lucky enough to play a few games with quite a few um test spin bowlers um so Eddie Emmings, who played for England, and 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 I kept wicket a little bit, and I kept wicket to Eddie Emmings. And the first time I kept wicket to him, I I just couldn't believe how quick he was. You know, he's a spin bowler, yeah. and he's pushing it down, and I'm I'm thinking I should be stood back. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it's funny because I saw Ben Ben Folks apparently, well, not apparently, I watched the game. He dropped a catch in the India test, stood up to Stuart Broad, and they're all going, well, we expected him to take it. And he's such a good keeper, you do expect him to take it. But he stood up to Stuart Broad, for Christ's sake. I mean, yeah. if the ball deflects off the bat, I mean, he's got no chance to move his hands. I mean, it's actually physiologically impossible to move your hands that distance in that yeah. point of time. You know, I mean, incredible, incredible. When you watch people who can play the game, mate, mm. you know, that, that game in particular, you know, you can get away in a certain amount of rugby with just being a thug and physical and brutal, um, or indeed, actually, the other way, being very intellectual about how you play the game and clever. Um, and you can judge which type of player I probably was in rugby. Um, and um, I'll leave that for you to decide. But, but in cricket, it just... You have to be hugely talented to make it. 
and I and one of my pet hates, and you know this, is all those people who've never played at that level. Uh, of course, everyone's allowed their opinion, but you've also got to have the humility to know what you've never done, yeah. you know. And if you've never done it and you never experienced it at a particular level, whatever it is, it doesn't have to, have to be cricket, whatever it is, if you haven't done that, maybe before slating someone off or having a go at them, maybe just think, okay, I haven't done that. So perhaps I'll just go. Temper what I'm going to say a little bit. You yeah. know, not, it doesn't mean you have to stop saying it. You're allowed your opinion. Um, yeah. But it's interesting you say that because that's, you know, if I was to write down some things about about you that I'd learned and, and heard and just came through, one of them was always about your your ability to take other people's perspectives, um, just just like that. And and that's that that does, I don't think it always comes naturally to people to to do that. Where, where does that come from? Um, I, I don't know really, Rich, because, you know, my granddad had got me into, um, into reading, uh, of which I sort of probably owe him the most out of anybody. He, he was a real left-wing bigot in the, in the old-fashioned sense. I mean, I love it. I'm left-wing myself, and, but, but I... But I remember listening to a lot of the rhetoric that came out of him. And, and you know, he was a die-in-the-wall Stalinist, really, if the truth was known. And, you know, and then you ask questions when you find out a bit about this guy, Joe Stalin, who he sort of admired. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, that someone admired Stalin. But but there you go. There were, there were an old load of people at that era who did. Um, and then you sort of read, and then you ask him a few questions about, this bloke he likes and he starts you can tell you've got him uneasy and he wasn't unknown to throw people out of his house his relatives if they argued with him my granddad mm -hmm. wow. but i think he felt better of throwing a sort of a six or seven year old out of his house i mean i'm probably older than now making <laughs> out make me sound more clever but he sort of took it and then i'd notice things like as a socialist he'd always make my nana who's one of the kindest people i've ever ever spent time with um I include my mum in that as well you know quite quite simple people in in the nicest meaning of that they didn't want a complicated life they didn't complicate life they were just very generous um and i saw sort of that generosity and kindness to people and maybe sort of learning to listen but i also saw this sort of argument counter argument i witnessed my granddad never making himself a cup of tea my my um, nana was called Mabel, and he'd sort of go, Mabel, is it cup of tea time? <laughs> and I remember one day saying, why doesn't he make his own cup of tea? Now, he's a socialist. He believes in equality for men and women. And he just gave me this look of total disdain. <laughs> uh, and, and I thought, well, I, what do I do here? You know, probably throw me out next. <laughs> But I sort of decided I wasn't going to get crossed or angry because I could observe him getting cross and angry. He's just going to try and stay reasonably calm and just see how far, if you like, I could push it. Yeah. Push him. No, not in a nasty way. I love this bloke. He just 
was a legend in his own lifetime. You know, he'd been blacklisted for leading a strike and he never really got any work again because so what he did is he read and he wrote letters for people and read things and gave them advice how to cope with their own life in a in a very, very um very, very working class sort wow. of environment where people still when I grew up had outside toilets no running water you know in fact I've lived the first 12 years of my life without an inside toilet and not running water you know um and and yeah I just sort of sort of saw the power of listening but bringing up using people's own arguments against themselves I think that maybe what you were getting at you know trying to understand the detail and really truly understand their argument. Yeah. When I say as well as they do, that would be arrogant, but but to know it as well as I could whilst opposing it. So I probably knew what they were going to bring up to argue their case and would try and think hard about countering that. Yeah. And I suppose that that's what's naturally later in my life taken me more and more down a philosophical pathway. Um, you know, that, that, asking those questions, investigating something from different angles, looking at different perspectives, looking at how someone might construct their argument and demonstrating the best way to negate their argument is to understand their argument. And in fact, if you really can to empathize with their position, you know, you can still strongly disagree with something, but if you've got some empathy for that, um, yeah, you, you, you can sort of start to penetrate further into someone else's sort of position and see the weaknesses. Because in anyone's position, there will be weaknesses. In my own ideas, my own love of particular concepts and constructs, I like to think I see and I know the weaknesses. And, and actually, I hope, Rich, you could confirm that, but you don't have to, obviously, is that I'm quite often open about those weaknesses rather than trying to flannel around them and cover them up, you know? And in a way that's, that's, they're the beautiful elements that we still need to discover more of, you know, that we need to look further of, we need to investigate. And also if we can't overcome those flaws in an argument, maybe it's not the right argument. We need to move on, switch to something else. Yeah. And I think I'm willing to do that. I mean, in fact, actually, one of those people I mentioned earlier, a very good friend of mine, always said to me, Mickey, you, you've been daft in your career because you've been interested in too many things. You've investigated too many things. You've tried to know too much about too many things. The rest of us just focus on one thing, get our name attached to it and do that for a number of years. And we get good gigs, you know, invite to do good talks, maybe make, in some cases, make a lot of money from doing it you don't seem to be interested in that you seem to be trying to on this perpetual search for for i don't know maybe a new fad a new trend would be an unkind way of putting it and i hope it isn't that but to try and find an answer and i suppose at some point we're going to talk about pain and that's might be my pain journey that's started with that nociceptive stuff you know was facilitated by tim watson at college went did a master's degree where got taught by all these fantastic pain experts, Clifford Wolf, Bruce Lynn, Max, Steve McMahon, um, 
Pat Wall, Tony Dickinson, Mariah Fitzgerald, you know, because it was at UCL. Amazing privilege. And they just, every time I went and listened to these people, it just burnt inside me. You know, it really made me passionate, wanted me to find out things. I I read a lot and I always read and I probably on record as saying, which is true, I read two hours a day every day, which I do. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, he came away and read even more than that and couldn't get enough of it. But, but more, because he just kept raising questions that I found sometimes I could answer, many times I couldn't. And then just went on this search and did that by, you know, trying to say, like if I'm to truly understand this stuff, maybe I can't understand it because I'm not clever enough or I don't understand it. I've never done that stuff. So the best way to understand some of this sort of basic science is to do that with the best people. Back to that yeah. urge to do things with the very best. You know, went in Steve McMahon and Steve Thompson's lab where Pat was there as well, Pat Wall. Um, I just learned an amazing amount, not just from them, but everyone else there, you know, Professor Lyd Bradbury, who was doing regeneration work. Um, you know, this just wealth of, of fantastic scientists who worked harder than I'd ever met any people working before and played even harder than that. And that was a fantastic environment to be in, just a fantastic. And that answered loads of questions but posed even more. And then I was lucky enough to do sort of a postdoc of, of a sort of fairly flexible type with the neuroimaging group, Steve Williams's group down at the IOP and Matt Howard. And yeah, we thought that by going up to the brain, I'd answer all these questions that my work in the periphery and spinal cord and with the immune system, that, that was my mm -hmm. real bag, as you know, um, which, was, which was in its infancy at the time, neuroimmunology of pain. Um, Felt I'd still had some questions and thought going through the neuroaxis might sort of answer those, but but probably knowing deep down it wouldn't. And then and then sort of that period after that, you know, really going out and exploring lots of different ideas, deconstructing some of those ideas I've been part of developing with people like Louis and Lorimer and Dave Butler. And, um, and then sort of thinking, well, actually, I keep coming back to this. It may be not the question, it's how we're attempting to ask it and then answer it. And that sort of actually led me into, you know, philosophy with people like Andy Clark and recently people like Julian Carvestine and Michael Kirchhoff and, you know, and a wealth of people and, and plugged into that are all these other people, you know. So, yeah. So, so you kind of sat in the, the, in the middle of this, this incredible network as, as perhaps one of the or perhaps the most understated character within it yeah i mean those those people all the 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 non-competitive aspects of of me within all of that is that they probably did do what someone i hugely respect told me i should have done is just sat with one of these topics and just mastered it and owned it and you know, and and that's what it's about. And ownership is probably because of that socialist upbringing. It's sort of a weird thing for me. I love things. I love owning things. I'm not in the material way. I, you know, if I buy a pair of socks, 
I researched the socks, I buy the socks, and then I love the socks. I enjoy wearing them. And I know it sounds really weird, but but people who know me know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'd sooner own a pair of socks from some great British institution like Cordings, because I get great pleasure in wearing them. Mm. No one knows they're from Cordings. They don't have Cordings on the label. You know, you wouldn't know. You think they're from Tesco's, nothing wrong from Tesco's, but but I enjoy wearing these things and I know what they're made of and they can trace them back. And all those things are important to me, but ownership isn't generally important to me on a different level. So I never wanted to own a field and that's been good because then I haven't felt I own something and I've been happy to give it up when it was the right time to give it up and take on something else. Um, and, and yeah, I suppose, I suppose the, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, some of the nicer things that people have said to me, uh, I can't get through this without mentioning Nick Sparr. He hasn't paid me to say that, but one of my good mates, physio, also did his PhD with me. Is just a lovely man who's, who's been through more recent difficult times in his own life. Um, come out the other side of that, coming out the other side of that, and as a shining example, and I want to say that, I hope he listens to this at some point. Someone I love to death. I mean, he's, but his favourite quote was, he's got the dress sense of Nigel Farage and the politics of, um, of Jeremy Corbyn. Probably <laughs> not that true, but there's something in that. Anyway, how are we getting on to these things? I diverge, but you know I would. Um, yeah, I've been happy to sort of sit there, but I hope what I've done is represented my profession and myself well. Um, I've been careful about overstating what I or our profession can offer. But in doing that, I think people have been interested to come on certain journeys with me and allow me to sometimes lead and sometimes follow. Um, and yeah, I've just been, I've been lucky. And, and, and yeah, and I suppose my the favourite thing that someone's ever said about me, and it's often overlooked, and uh, this is my chance to say it, so <laughs> thanks Rich for allowing me to, to come out as, you know, subversive, arrogant, it I have is that you know Louis Gifford in his books sort of said that I was probably the most knowledgeable physio about pain anywhere in the world he'd met and that that obviously coming from him means a tremendous amount to me and I don't accept that but I know what he was trying to get at and I think there's an element of that in what you would get in if I read you right Rich that that I've managed to hold my own uh, properly you know when people say translational sort of research translational me you know medicine whatever that, that's been my career not not because i've done the translational thing it's just been my career eh? you know i've gone from clinician into the lab coming back into clinical practice and you know contrary to what a lot of these people particularly on social media think you know I've kept some clinical contact at some level throughout my life. I don't have very much now, but I do have some. Um, obviously not any right now because of COVID. Um, but, you know, that, that's hugely motivated my work, you know, hugely motivated my work. And, you know, people like Pat Wall, who was massive influence on me not least of which because of his politics and his personality and who he was and and 
taking me a little bit under his wing because of some of those things as well that made me different to probably some of the people who'd been in his lab. You know, Pat was a anarchist, sort of anarchist Marxist, um, had sort of lived in an anarchist commune with Norm Chomsky and all those guys and, and being around some pretty radical human beings. And I know he had the sort of conversations with me he didn't have with that many people. Um, because I didn't get some of that political stuff with him. Um, but I was lucky enough I did. So, yeah, just, just, yeah, I suppose, you know, now I'm regretting saying all the stuff I've just said because of what it might sound like, you know. Well, and I, I don't want to come across as arrogant, and maybe we all have an arrogant patch, but I'm confident that, that if I open my mouth about something, I know about it. Hmm. And if I don't know about it, I won't open my mouth in the first place. No, I think that's absolutely fair. And I think that I, I can't imagine that there's anyone that's, that's had those experiences that has gone into it with that heart. And, and despite, you know, loving science, loving philosophy, it, it always seems that it just comes back to what it is to be human. That seems to be at the essence of it. And, and these are different routes to get to the nub of, of what it is to be a human being. And perhaps pain is one of the greatest examples of a, of a human perception, uh, human experience. Love is maybe another. Um, maybe that's what you're trying to get to. Yeah, and I think, I think, um, I think that goes back to my upbringing because there was a lot of pain around where I lived. You know, I could walk down my street and see... Uh, it's an amazing community where everyone down my road was my auntie and uncle. None of them were related to me, you know. <laughs> you were likely to be given food by them if you needed food, to be watered by them, to be slapped by them. I mean, you know, it was still a day when if you were naughty, you were going to get hit by everyone, you know. And yes, it did do me some harm. And, <laughs> um, and, and it's an amazing community, but there was real poverty around where I grew up. There really was. And and that was really highlighted to me when I went to secondary school because I went to a school where you had this sort of very working class group of people in its catchment area and then and then the very rich and there are some in Lincoln mm. and you find yourself with these people and and actually you know, many of them became my best friends you know they they I took to them and they took to me probably because of the rugby which obviously very middle class sport particularly then um but just learned a lot about other people but never forgot what i went back to not necessarily in my own home we were we were fairly okay compared to most people around us but you know my mom and dad never owned a property it was always rented blah blah um and i just saw all of this yeah suffering going on every day you know it's very very good way to live if you've got soft buddhist tendencies which i know i have and i know you have rich as well i've outed you um you know it's just looking back yeah there was a lot of suffering there's a lot of pain around um and and there was a lot of people who the difference was though it was just that era just before thatcher and i am going to be political because one of the things that we still have a legacy of thatcher was that if you want something, you've got the right to have it. You just grab it. You don't really have to work for it. You know, she would pretend she said that, but actually her politics didn't reflect that. You know, that sort of 
right wing libertarianism that that you just didn't matter what you were doing to get it and previous to that you know i was brought up to think if you wanted to make anything of yourself you were really hard to do that now the truth mm. was not everyone got the opportunities but if you got the opportunity like all those people who went before me who got scholarships to grammar schools and one that and you know and i got this chance to go to a fantastic school surrounded by fantastic other people fantastic teachers and just flew in that environment mm. but then i'd go oh and and I'd see what there was at home, and, and I know that sounds like really laying it on thick, but but it never left me. But I knew these people were just the sort of solid human beings that that lived a tough life, but mm. gave out an awful lot of love. But not not everyone, by the way. Some people gave out an awful lot of not love. Um, <laughs> brutality but there was just this sort of humanity there that 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 yeah i i play out this sort of scenario with my two boys who have both been brought up in a very middle class sort of atmosphere world you know where we live where you used to live just around the corner from me rich um yeah, it's a, it's a fairly well-to-do area. You know, my boys sort of always joke about me and my upbringing and and whatever. But but I can't I can't lose it. I mm. won't lose it. I don't live that same life anymore. But it's there and it's infused in everything I do. And I'd like to think, you know, I've always been a powerful advocate for other human beings, regardless of their class, their race, their culture. And maybe even their politics, because I do constantly have this conversation again with, with my boys and other people. You know, like most people say they want democracy, but in democracy, you have to give people a voice, even including those people who you don't particularly agree with. Yeah. And then people don't want that democracy. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I'm not a Democrat. I don't believe in democracy, you see. So I'm quite happy to say I'm a democratic totalitarian. I don't think everyone should have a voice. You know, I don't think we should voice these things. I don't. But I don't profess to be a fan of democracy. But I am a fan of totalitarian democracy. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And and it's yeah you know this, I'm joking but I'm not joking and 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 whatever that would actually look like I don't actually know yeah you know but but I love people I like to think it's always informed the work I do I go back to that a lot the bit I miss most about not being a day to day clinician is people I hope that I can get on with most people I've I meet I hope I've got on with most people I've met. And I hope to get on with most people I'm going to meet. Um, but I'm not everyone's cup of tea. Of course, I'm not. Um, but that, um, so that that human touch I've, I've always felt has, has been there. And there's, I always, always remember you talking about, you know, when you were working in a department and how if, if someone in that department came in and they weren't feeling great for whatever reason that happened to be, you would make a point of of seeing that they're okay and and if necessary say look just go home and sort it out we'll pick up the slack yeah it's it's a very different nhs by the way you know (laughs) where we could do that but but we can't really do it but we did it you know we 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 take care of each other 
you know, we're such a fantastic profession, and not just us, all the professions, and we give so much to other people. Sometimes we get this sort of almost hyper-professionalism where, you know, a bit like a bit like in acting scenario, the show must go on, you know, hey, <laughs> doing jazz hands, no one can see me. Yeah. But, but no, we're human beings, and and sometimes people couldn't give of their best, and maybe in a brutal way. I was thinking of their patients. If they couldn't give of their best, you know, then then the patient didn't deserve to have anything less than the best that that person could give. Mm. But equally, I didn't know anyone who didn't want to give their best. So their tension of not being able to deliver it, the person not receiving it just wasn't wasn't something i wanted to accept and i was reasonably senior enough and also crafty enough to create an environment where we where we then just took on their patients we didn't send anyone away we just all took on a few yeah and yeah it's yeah, physiotherapy socialism which i mean <laughs> in many physiotherapy circles would not go down too well of course as we well know but um you know it, it just it just seemed to work and and what i loved about that is an old load of people who were yeah if you say legacy what's your legacy um actually i've got two or three but one of them that that now i've become comfortable with the term didn't take long did it um <laughs> but but one of them was that a load of people at that time said I want to give up physiotherapy and and we 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 investigated that why do you want to and a lot of people said because i feel inadequate i can't do this you know i went to college i learned all this stuff it's not working for me i'm i can't do it well enough it's me you're saying it's not you you know you ever thought it might be your education it might be what you've learned it might be that we're not learning the right things for the right people at the right time it's got nothing to do with you because you're trying your best and and i really love the fact that a lot of people who sort of got into that spirit listened to that took a bit of pressure off themselves um came at the end of things like rotations and over the years come back and said you know mick if i hadn't spent three or four months on that rotation with you i'd have given up physio you know they've gone on to have glittering careers i'm not going to name them but you know they they've gone on to far exceed my talents as physiotherapists you know they've they've become fantastic leaders within our profession uh, and that's a really lovely thing to think you might have meant that few of those people were retained yeah yeah that's a great legacy no. isn't it? because you think about all the then people that have benefited from that for you rich you know I'm not asking you again to, to out yourself in any way. I remember we had conversations where you'd done several things, um, all of which I now know that you can reflect on and think, well, actually, that was something really positive. But at times, and particularly when I first got to know you, I think there was still a feeling that actually you might have had some of those self-imposed inadequacies you know what was this really doing i've not found where i want to go with it or therefore was what i've done a waste of time now you know 
Don't, and I always remember, go back to you and Matt, eh? Matt Morlier, who's yeah. sadly no longer with us. And we did that thing on the MSC where we drew up on a board. It was really good science, wasn't it? Yeah. Drew up on a board, put all the labels of what you might need to become a really good clinician in the arena of pain. And we went, you know, of course, we had biopsychosocial sort of approach, well represented. But I think it had all sorts of things in there. I think it probably had Buddhism in there. It had, you know, it was multidimensional. And I never forget you and you and Matt scored the highest. I did that with every year that had ever done that MSC. And I'll never forget you and Matt scored the highest out of anyone who'd been through the course before or since. You know, you were the highest scorers. And you know, and that's your nursing and mm. and your physical education, sports science sort of backgrounds, eh? Yeah. Yeah. But when I first met you, those are sort of almost at their negative impact on you and coming out the other side of it and still in search of where you wanted to go. Yeah. Well, I'd received quite, and, and you're right, you know, now I look back and I value both the education and, and all the experiences and all the different things that I did. Um, but I encountered quite a lot of resistance on the way through. And, and at the time, you know, it was, it was tough. And that's probably why I felt inadequate because I basically been told that. And, and you kind of take some of that on and you carry it around with you. Um, but then one day you kind of, you wake up, you have conversations with other people who are more insightful and they go, well, actually, you know, these are all valuable experiences. And then you hear other people's stories, like all the things that you've done and other people I know who've done all these amazing things. And you think, well, actually, they got to where they are because not only have they got the drive, but because of all of that, all of that stuff. And it's, you know, and the fact that you've been interested in so many different things, well, that, that's what's led to, to this, you sitting there now doing what you're doing. Yeah, talking to you. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. <laughs> no, Our whole no, lives no, no. have been spent exactly. coming to this exactly. crescendo. Yeah, I, <laughs> there's some people who might suggest it's the pinnacle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where, where, I mean, how could it possibly get any better? Are we ending there? Because you've left me speechless and have to. <laughs> but no, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't muck around because there's something quite serious in this. I mean, we should always muck around and lose humour, you lose something quite vital to life. But yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to look at, at people like yourself and and remember some of those sort of not darker days that sounds melodramatic but those sort of conversations that again I'd like to think we created not not me I didn't create that we created those in those environments those small groups you know I look now at how we're supposed to run an MSC and get more bombs on seats and get more money in for the edge for the university and but that was probably the death nail of the course at King's because I kept refusing to take mm. more people even though we had you know, lots of people wanted to do the course. They'd say, well, why don't you take the 70 people who have applied? And, you know, it's an MSC. Yeah. You know, we'll take, uh, you'll take 14 max, max. And most years I found a reason to only have 12, you know, or 10. <laughs> or, and, and also everyone who came, they had to fit with each other. You know, that was part of the scheme, eh? You know, we, we didn't want any profession to be overrepresented, even though they were overrepresented in applications. But then it sort of worked, eh? And it worked 
because everybody who came on it actually let themselves be human and showed that side of them and told their stories like we've gone through like yourself of, of you know why you'd ended up there and what you'd felt before you got there and what you were still feeling and yeah a lot about we got to know about everything and everyone you remember those things we used to do where we'd have coffee to begin mm. the day no rush yeah. into lectures and we yeah. i mean we'd have a field day today wouldn't we with the headlines of the newspapers you know <laughs> like bring me some evidence of pain just from from you know it's called pain science and society yeah. eh? there's actually always been one of my measures of what whether people listened or not while they were with us because you'd be surprised at how many people have turned that into a pain neuroscience msc oh really yeah we say they did a pain neuroscience msc so if anyone says that who did the king's msc in pain science and society they're trying to be something that they're not because that wasn't what the course was mm. about it was about neuroscience eh? yeah all, hopefully at the highest level but it was about people and society and the impact of pain and all those things that I think over the time since it started, finished, and we've all evolved from there. I think that's the direction everyone's traveled in. I'm not saying that MSC did that far from it. There are loads of people doing that on going on that journey anyway. But it was always intended to do that, to make people look at science and society, impact on people, impact on culture, impact on, you know, people's in their lived world. Mm. Um, and the majority of people who may say now they've did a pain MSc, uh, you know, an MSc in pain neuroscience, you know, while they were at the course, they definitely paid into what it was about. They paid into the philosophy mm. of that course. And it made it a fantastic environment to teach in, to learn in, to learn with people in. Uh, it, it's it, it was it, it was something special that we all created, you know. Mm. And again, I'm not embarrassed to sort of make that sound as though something I've been involved in was really really good. It wasn't really really good. It was fantastic. Yeah. Right. And I'm it not was. selling that to you, which is, yeah. I don't need to, I know. It just was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but it would be impossible to do now, by the way. Really? Well, because of the, the need to have numbers or, or yeah. not the flexibility uh, to do it the way that, in a sense, oh, it should be and, done? And if you haven't, you know put on some virtual platform the lectures 10 days before you know i mean the, the lectures became what the lectures were on that course yeah there were, there were module frameworks and there was credits and we worked to that and we never abused that you know it's called highly in qaa but but it doesn't mean to say that there was a rigidity to delivery or rigidity. I mean, you know, we tried to do the same thing. Say, when you looked around the room and you saw towards the end of term, everyone tired and maybe that little fluttering of sort of um, concentration going towards exams and focusing on that, you know, then you realize actually, if you're into education, you think, do I just throw more at them that you know is not going to be in the exams, by the way? Yeah. So I'll just add some more content that's never going to appear in their exam. Well, we'll chill out a bit. Let them reflect on what they've learned that is in the exam. 
you know, maybe do a couple of impromptu revision classes, mm. maybe even a couple of impromptu that's revise the questions that I know are in the exam. Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably be retrospectively struck off the whatever <laughs> list lecturing. You know, but but again, the clever people came on the journey and did something. I don't think I was that explicit to say this is coming up in the exam. Not not to you lot anyway. Probably after you know educational standards have dropped. But you know, of course, I'm I'm joking. But but you couldn't do it anymore. You know. It probably goes back to my beard, my love for beards and smoking pipes. And yeah, you wouldn't you be know, able to smoke a pipe in the lecture, would you? No, no, you wouldn't. But you know, hey, let's not let's not go too far. Reminiscence and an education, you know, dominated by bearded white blokes, you know, from middle class domains, you know, of which I now have become. You know, we, we don't want that either. So in many ways, education has become more inclusive, diverse. And, and that uh, I'd like to think you know, it goes without saying someone with my upbringing and my background and my belief systems, you know, couldn't couldn't be more happy to see the direction of travel we've gone. Um, but we still slip up occasionally. You know, we, we've just put this print preprint out uh, and, you know, it's it. It got some comments on social media, rightly about um, you know it's still being dominated by males and and dealing with perspectives of other males within the same field as you, which keeps every focus towards sort of that body of male-dominated work. Yeah. And, yeah, and and you can really learn about that, and I'm glad that that was pointed out to us, and we'll do something about it, and I'm. Mm -hmm glad i'm in a position to do something about it and it made me think and i've learned a lot from that those comments so, well, that's it isn't it you're prepared to listen and and take it on board and take action do something respond yeah, I mean, in a positive there's, way there's no reason not to do that mm. uh, and particularly when you can you've got to demonstrate to other people if you can there's no there's no point in not doing it there's none you know there's just zero point in trying to push back I, watch, watch the tv watch everything watch watch discussions i might have even done it tonight so please when i listen to it back which i won't really do because i hate listening to myself <laughs> like most people but you know, maybe you'd be kind enough to sort of um, transcribe it all into your beautiful handwriting and send that to me, <laughs> and I'll read it. Um, and uh, but 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 how many? Well, I've just done it. But yeah, yeah, I see your point. But mm. and that never needs. It doesn't need the but. Shut up the but. Doesn't need qualification caveat. Yeah. Say I agree. We did wrong. I'll do something about it. And then a bit like Tim Watson, you know, two weeks later, we'll have this lecture, we'll do it, we'll have the discussion, then do it. You know, mm. you're going to do something about it. I'll make the change because it's the right thing to do. No bots, no qualification. And then do it. And then you've done it. And you've learned from it. And then don't have to have someone point it out to you again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because you've learned.
and 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 I've learned, and I'm grateful for that learning process. And the person, I doubt they're going to listen to this, but the person who 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 sent that tweet, yeah, you know, I've got to genuinely say thank you to. Yeah. That's great. And, you know, and you do what you say you're going to do. So. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't, I, I, I would think there are probably some people who say, no, he's, he said he was going to do something and then he didn't. He said he was going to write a book at some point and I still haven't, you know? <laughs> but I still might. Yeah. I still intend to write a book. And in fact, it's, it's increasingly likely, I know what that's going to have done now, but it's increasingly likely because I think one of the dilemmas for me and probably why I've not been as prolific as other people in terms of massive paper outputs is that I want to say much more than you ever can in three or four thousand words. So, so I feel completely constrained by that limitation of words. I mean, one of the things I enjoy most about this um if you like operating, writing, thinking with philosophers, is they love those footnotes at the bottom of paper. And sometimes the footnotes are longer than the paper. Yeah, yes, like one line and then <laughs> Yeah. Or a word, and then you've got to give all the reasons why you've used the word. I absolutely love that. I, I'm in my element. I found my natural publishing home with that style, you know. Yeah. And and I think, you know, you know I own and I've read them all, a lot of books. And and again, you know, if I pulled a book off my bookshelf that's to my left, you know, you, you, if, it, there's, there's a mixture of books. Most of them to my left are philosophy books. And you don't well know they've got, if they've not got footnotes, they've got like notes at the back and you go to them and you think, wow, actually I've paid 100 quid for 35 pages of, of, of text and 140 pages of notes-based text. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I love that. You know, I like it. And and then that little direction of travel that you know you're not allowed to put in the main body, and you're certainly not if you're a scientist, eh? whatever that means. Um, but you can, you can write those beautiful sort of footnotes, and you can tell your anecdotal story, and you can... Yeah, maybe maybe set up a, a thought experiment or just get people thinking about something. You know, it's not in my case never as grandiose as me being able to come up with a thought experiment. Just have a little think about something for a second um, and move on. And then, um, yeah, you know, I I think I think that probably is meaning that I'm becoming more likely to write a book. So I won't do that podcast thing. I'm going to just write a book. Here you go. And, the book. and it'll be. Yeah. It'll be 36 pages long with 200 pages of footnotes. My intention would be to have four pages, actually, <laughs> of anything. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we joke, but we both actually knowing each other well, probably know there's a lot of substance <laughs> yeah. behind that. I mean, it would be great to do it anyway, just, just to do it like that. Yeah. I, you know, the, the pressure then becomes that people might want to read it and you you owe them something if they're going to take that time to, to read it and and yeah i've got a lot of things that i think i think are right to come out now and and i've really struggled with writing all my life you know it's i think it's a confidence thing it's 
it, it, it comes back. I mean, I saw a couple of d discussions and tweets a while ago, um, and, uh, and it sounds like I'm a social media sort of, you know, follower, and I do to a degree, but not massively. And as it's been pointed out, I'm a real dinosaur in those things, and I'm <laughs> happy to be that dinosaur um, to a point. Um, but I'm one of those weird dinosaurs who's increasingly involved and interested in AI and machine learning, which sort of uh, means that I'm the Tyrannosaurus Rex with two slightly longer arms than the normal little arms he has, but not that long. Um, but all joking aside, I think, yeah, no, we, there's something, something about me that's always found right in difficult but I'm finding it now becoming easier, which is an odd thing. Um, but but my thoughts go to someone like Mary Midgley. I can't remember what age she was, but very famous philosopher um, and someone who I actually I hugely admire, not necessarily because I agree with everything she does, but I think the way she conducted herself, her, her takedown of Richard Dawkins, um, which is you can see on YouTube, um, not necessarily I agree with her argument, but I like the fact that she took down someone who I think can be quite pompous. Yeah, I like his ideas, but again, I'm going to get destroyed, aren't I? Um, <laughs> thank goodness Louis no longer with us because he would be the first to cut my throat <laughs> saying that. But but yeah, Dawkins represents for me, for me personally, a brilliant scientist but someone who I can't connect with because of how he delivers things and his slight bombacity and, and his, and his ability to disrespect other people at times mm -hmm. and their position. And I mean about religion, I, I hugely agree with him about that, but Mary Midgley sort of just really takes him down and it's a fantastic thing to see. Anyway, back to Midgley, she, she didn't really write, anything of note until she was certainly around my age if not older um so maybe 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 i've got my inner midgley coming out finally you know and i've got a few things that i still want to say but i am being genuine and honest here i think i i think i've got a lot of things still that are important to say and that would find some importance in in other people's perspective and perception but i also increasingly think there's a lot of people who don't want to listen to me and my type anymore and and i'm not thinking they should i'm thinking if that's the case should i say it or do i need to say it mm. you know because if you don't have an audience um what's the point because otherwise it might just become like some form of esoteric masturbation, you know? Yeah, but that that's a big if though, isn't it? If if that's the case. And and you know, I would say that that, you know, again, with the 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 all the experiences, your knowledge, the people you've worked with, what your thinking, you know, just this huge blend of, of all of those things. There's something to say, and and actually, you, you really, I, you're compelled to say it. You know, you've got to. You know, to hold on to it would be no use to anyone. 
Yeah, maybe. I, I, I was struck because um, uh, all the fellows of the Royal Society were, were asked to do, yeah, if you like, autobiography. So, you know, not, not a huge book, but, but um, for, for, for a sort of set of compendiums that, that you know, they, they, were, they were the likes. And, and Pat Wall one day came in and sort of put a copy of his own down on the table. Um, and it really was, and still one of my favourite reads of, of his. And it, and, and it was supposed to be about him, but all he did was detail all these fantastic people he'd worked with and gave detail about them and great stories. I mean, fantastic stories about people he'd met. Nothing embarrassing, nothing um, that would actually detract from their importance, but actually something that humanised them all. Mm. You know, that made made you really get to understand who they were and actually uh, on a deeper reading made you think oh wow you know like just to be with that group of people at that period of time you know increasingly my interest in in your sort of the nerdy side of of sort of computational neuroscience no, I think he's real. I like it. It warms me because it's a real connection to to like Pat's early days when he was at MIT with people like um, Walter McCulloch and um, you know Pitts and um, uh, Jerome Letvin and Marvin Minsky and obviously Ron Malzak and all those guys. I mean, if you take them outside of the so so I said Walter. McCulloch and I should say Warren McCulloch and Walter Pitts. I'm correcting myself before a nerd comes after us. <laughs> eh? um, but they're all scientific heroes, so I shouldn't get their name right, wrong anyway. Um, but they were all the beginning. If you go to computational neuroscience, we go to AI, you know, Norbert Werner was there, you know, cybernetics, you know, all of those guys were around. John O'Keefe or, you know, fantastic people who've sort of really led lots of other fields. And, you know, and I shared some great insights, or Pat shared some great insights with me. But just that old atmosphere of really clever people and really quite larger-than-life characters and, and yeah, just yeah, some of the stories are fantastic, you know. Mm. Also tragic in the case of Pitts, you know, he's um, someone who, 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 who I'm, I'm still trying to write a play about. He's um, someone who, who, if you didn't know about, was ran away from home and lived in the sort of library at Chicago University and was befriended by all these great sort of scientists. And he'd gone into the library and they'd sort of, you know, suppose the right word is tolerated but I th I'd like to think nurtured this young boy who then educated himself in calculus and several languages and was a mathematical genius um, self-taught and then he became a scientist published many fantastic papers that now in that AI computational neuroscience world are, are classics yes of their time they've become outdated but they're classic papers and he, 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 he was accused of certain things that weren't true by 
other scientists and he made him lose his own identity as a person. He couldn't stand his own name being sort of mentioned. He destroyed his own thesis. He became a, a alcoholic and he died very young. Um, it's quite a tragic story, mm. actually. Um, you know, and I was sort of trying to research some of that stuff, partly because Pat was there, you know, mm. good friend of Pat's. Partly because I'm interested in that era. Um, uh, fantastic characters read about them in, in Pat's writings. Talk to him about them. Um, yeah, it's sort of, I feel quite strongly connected to all those sort of people, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of weird and uh, no way am I clever enough to have been with those people, but I just would have loved to have been with those people, you know, mm -hmm. and I had my own, as I said, I've had my own experiences of being surrounded by hugely talented people who work and play hard. That, that lab where I did my PhD, uh, and I'm sorry if this sounds disrespectful to anyone I've worked with before or since then, just was the most amazing environment to spend some time and not only that you know i i go my boys well were born young while i did my phd as a more mature student and just their insight to someone who was around who wasn't like them completely different age in many cases different responsibilities and they'd help me out. They'd do bits of experiments so I didn't need to go back in, you know, after coming home, put my kids to bed and then going back to work or going in on a Saturday or Sunday. And I did lots of that. But I didn't do anywhere near as much as I needed to because of those people. But I never had to ask. Yeah. They volunteered. And that just that generosity and insight, you know, and compassion and kindness in really intelligent, quite nerdy in cases, won't mention names, but you know, in some cases really nerdy, yeah. you know, yeah. just, just something that you don't always see. Yeah. I shouldn't really use that word. Should I nerdy, you know, which should welcome and embrace nerds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, yeah, it's a derogatory term and, and I'm using it as such and I apologize for that so if you associate yourself as being a nerd good on you <laughs> yeah and I, and I was surrounded by loads of them who were just lovely people and that is just those bearings and but again the people there people like Steve McMahon and Steve Thompson who really had the labs you know Pat was emeritus professor he sort of had a space there um obviously far more than just had a space there but they created an environment where everyone was equal from the first day they went there to the last day you didn't need to impose anything everyone would look at each other's work if your work was substandard they'd help you to bring it up to standard if you didn't know something they'd help you mm. if you if you produce some work they would put you through the ringer so that by the time you sent your work outside of that lab, either publications or presentation, you'd had such a hard time in a supportive way inside. You never worried about taking anything anywhere else or putting it out. You know, ironically, having said I was worried about these things, you sort of knew it was going to stand up because, you know, some of the lab meetings were brutal. 
but no one fell out or hated each other or didn't get on because everyone knew that everyone was doing it for the right reasons. And, and, and a word that's been mentioned to me about a couple of places I've worked over the years was fragility. You know, when a place has fragility, you can't do things in any strong way because other people perceive it as something it isn't. Mm. So you need that strong core strength element. And I don't mean that in a brutalistic way. I mean, in a really deep, solid foundational way. Mm. And then, and then it allows people to, to do what they want and say things actually will never appear aggressive even when they're presented forcibly because it wasn't about aggression it was about confidence and strength and kindness actually ultimately yeah, yeah. you know and i think i think you can take that if you can create that as well in and we haven't talked anything about therapeutic sort of directions and but if you can create those sort of environments which is often difficult particularly with the types of patient clients that we're inclined to spend our life dealing with now but that can be a hugely positive thing when you when you build a sort of a, a strength of bond a strength of professional relationship with somebody that allows them to to say what they want to without any sense of being judged say what they want to with total freedom to be disagreed with because disagreeing is the right and helpful thing to do, yeah. but it's done always in the most compassionate, kind way, even if sometimes it has to be delivered in a direct way. Yeah. You know, hopefully yeah. very few times would it be that direct, but, but occasionally it needs to be, but you, you know, it's about creating a, a therapeutic alliance and i know we use that term a lot but but you know a deep one um and actually one of my things is not to try to think you could do that in 45 minutes or an hour yeah. you know like all these people who are trying to you know been on a pain course oh it rich yep Ah, sorry, mate. I just poked my computer key <laughs> unintentionally. Thought I'd cut you off. Leave that in. Don't edit it. I know you don't. It won't edit be edited anyway. So, <laughs> leave, leave, leave the fact that I, I'm into AI and those things. I can't even work a frigging computer. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> creating, you know, like all those Zoom meetings. Mute. You're on mute. Oh, <laughs> um, and, and then it becomes like you do it on purpose just for fun. You've never been on mute. But no one could see that, so it'll mean nothing. Um, but yeah, where were we? I, I think, yeah, people do courses, they listen to people, including yourself and myself and lots of other people do your weekend course and you come back and you, you know, know that we would never say that, but they come back and they think, oh, I'm going to use all these sort of metaphors I've learned from X, Y, and Z. I'm going to learn all of these statements. I'm going to do this sort of challenging, you know, um, unhelpful beliefs. And I'm going to, you know, tell people to sit with themselves and sort of feel themselves can sound the wrong thing to say. <laughs> and, you know, body scans, I'm going to throw everything at them. And they haven't bothered to build up a relationship with that person yeah 
you know. And just think in any other situation, if you try to do behavioral change, if you try to tell people they they probably need to think and behave differently, really feel comfortable with the word tell, but but in a scenario I'm setting, it often does appear to be telling someone. And, and if you, in fact you want to tell someone something, you don't do it before you know someone. No, no. Because if you do, it involves a power dynamic. Yeah, yeah. That that's why I've I, I mean, I'm not, I don't like to sort of be a fan of one particular technique over another, if you like, or way or, or approach. But but there's a there's a, such a, a lot around motivational interviewing that that I think is fantastic for this. Not nonetheless, not needless to say, because the people who I know in that field who are leading that field are just such compassionate, empathetic people, so humble. And, and so much about the person. And that's just absolutely ideal for the kind of work that we're talking about. And I, I love the analogy they, they, they use, and Steve Rolnick talked about this, of, you know, you, you knock on the door and you, you wait to be invited in. And if you are invited in, you don't start rearranging the furniture. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, that's a fantastic, it's a fantastic... Um... Uh, it's a fantastic analogy. Again, you know, going back to my 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 uh, working class roots, I just feel really uncomfortable going into someone's house, and I and I feel really uncomfortable when people will come into my house and then, you know, pick up an apple and eat an apple out of my fruit bowl. They can have the apple. I don't really care about that, but it's that sense of empowerment that they can. Yeah. That I just was you wait till you're asked to do that there's a lot of negatives about that but again you know going back i think that really helped me as a clinician you know i'm not shy but i'm gonna take my time you know i don't want people to come through my door and rearrange my furniture and i certainly don't want to go into anyone else's house and rearrange their furniture you know if they ask me to help them rearrange their furniture and tell me what to do i'm happy to do that you know Mm. but or better still if i really do want to go and rearrange their furniture i've got to be prepared to let them rearrange my furniture and again that that is yeah i know we're getting sort of weirdly metaphorically (laughs) in a infinite regress but but the truth is you know all of those things where where too often yeah you've heard me say one of my favorite things which probably seems totally off point but i hope it isn't is is physical therapists who hate being touched themselves they hate their personal space mm. being entered in i don't mean invaded that's the wrong thing you know again if you're not invited in you don't go in but but all these people who have issues about touch that they touch people all the time they 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 they're the sort of people who also tell people if you don't undress i can't treat you mm. then you think well hey wait a second you know this is just wrong you know it's just mm. just always been wrong it's wrong if that's your your modus operandi for me it's you know i don't want to be seen to be treated by you i don't want to be near you i feel uncomfortable with that and 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 i think there still is an element in pain where people think they can learn this stuff you know you can learn it from a course and then you can apply it as you've learned it and i'm not 
I'm not saying, you know, you sort of need to spend all the yards yards and you need to do this, all this experiential stuff. I mean, you know, some people are incredibly natural at doing it, eh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, um, like, I mean, yeah, there's, there's people who spring to mind straight away who, who learn their pain management. And I probably won't embarrass the, the people, either the, if you like, the Jedi Master and the Padawan. Um, because the Padawan was the one you wanted to learn from, not the Jedi Master. And they were just natural at it, and they took to it, and they were brilliant. Mm. And, you know, it was particularly a couple of people I'm thinking of, and those people who know my past will probably be able to work it out straight away who it was. Um, but So some people don't need an awful lot of teaching. They just need to be let alone, and, and they're good at it off the bat. But a lot of people do need to develop those skills and work hard to develop those skills and reflect and um and yeah i think i think we we need to just develop a lot more empathy in our approach to people and not be in too much of a rush you know yeah absolutely well, this i mean unfortunately this the system doesn't lend itself to that, whether it be NHS or private, unless you, you know, you, you can set your own terms. I've been lucky to set my own terms largely and, and make sure that there's loads of time. Um, and, and I often give more time than I say that I yeah. do um, because that's what's needed. That's what, you know, there's, there's, if there is some magic that happens, it's within how those two people are communicating, relating, getting on, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I'm a massive fan of Carl Friston's work and Chris Frith's work, and uh, they wrote a fantastic paper, you know, duet for one, and it's about communication using the principles of predictive processing, which we've got, what, an hour and whatever in, and we haven't even mentioned that. So, you know, for some people will be either disappointed or delighted. I haven't <laughs> banged the predictive processing drum by now. Um, and, and probably we won't bang it again. But, you know, this idea that communication is about, you know, I come with, if you like, my priors, my prior expectations, my beliefs, you know, something I hold you, you have yours, and it doesn't matter whether I'm the physio and you're the patient or you're the patient, I'm a physio, whatever we call ourselves, you know, mm. we, we need to somehow update each other's models we're working with till we find a common model, till we are singing the same song. Yeah. And then when we are, whose song is it? Is it your song or my song? You know, it's our song. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that Elton John? And when we get oh, that was to your song. sing together. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I knew, I knew I was on safe ground talking music with one of the top five musos I know, you know, in yourself, Rich. You are a, <laughs> you are a dedicated muso. You know, well, in the rock and roll arena. No, I don't. I don't buy that. I've I've witnessed you you showing true expertise in many a genre. <laughs> Again, yeah. You know, as I've mentioned, musos. I have to bring up Nick Spurry. I mentioned earlier. You know, Doctor Nick Spurry is also a muso uh -huh. um, uh, of the highest order, like your good self. You know, definitely. I don't think there'll be enough room for both of you in a pub quiz team. 
Um, although I think there would, because you know, although I think you're strong in the in the food and drink arena as well, or you know, slightly slightly different direction these days. Now you've given up the animal. Yeah, uh, kind of more plant based. I'm vegan, and nothing wrong with that. You know, I I well on the di that direction myself, but um. Uh, and certainly my youngest son is is fully in that direction but where are we going with this i mean oh, your yeah, whose song is it my pub quiz anyway yeah anyway it? back to back to that you might need to do some editing after all rich <laughs> no bring me no bring editing, me no back editing. on task <laughs> bring me back on task where are we going where do um, we want to go we we or should we, we shut up well just we we should probably We'll, we'll have to have a part two, but just because you were talking about the um, the communication, how we update our models, we bring it together, yeah. And then, and then we've got our song. I, I I then interrupted with with your song by Elton John. That was and my. Then I went into some muso sort of <laughs> world, but yeah. But you know, one of the lovely things again about all the people I've worked with, including yourself. It's really more comfortable like, having a conversation about all of these things. You can go off piece, you come back on piece. I mean, you know, sometimes actually that's what's necessary to show the human side as well in terms of um, you know being a clinician. I remember when I did my MACP and and you know, so good thing to do. I actually did it twice over by doing the proper MACP course and then as part of the MSC that I did as well, you know, and still got thrown out, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, not for any malpractice, by the way. Uh, I think it was about money, not paying your fees and stuff like that. But yeah, it seems like joining a club and being a member of a club. Um, but I remember when we did that and that typical thing, and it's absolutely correct. Back in the day, you had to do, you know, you learned your subjective, your objective, you did everything in order. You, yeah, you know, to be fair to Maitland and the people who were big proponents, he, he looked at communication and, you know, quite an advanced way for his time. Nothing like motivational interviewing or the things we now have, um, you know, to use that we should be employing readily. But, you know, when, when I remember I got so much stick for someone say, you know, in a subjective, you'd ask the question in the right order and then they'd say something like, yeah, I'm really worried about my swollen knee. And, and that for me was a place to just talk about that worry, you know. Mm -hmm. And I know that now sounds so obvious and it sounds like I'm saying it to try and sound like I was well ahead of my time or whatever. But I'm not bullshitting. I wanted to, and I did, irrespective of whether I was in an exam or being watched or not being watched, I knew that someone, as soon as someone told me they were worried, I needed to talk about that worry, mm -hmm. not to exploit it, not to press on it, not to to sort of psychologize someone but if i as a human being communicate a emotion to you and the other person i'm communicating with and is sat the other side of me totally ignores that totally ignores it uh, what does that say to me yeah you know 
what's it say? And then you, you know, and I remember being tortured by the people who told me they were more enlightened than I was, you'd say, but you see, what you're doing then is you're you're feeding that concern and that worry. You're you're actually, you know, giving attention to something that is because you know, people had learned the terms maladaptive. Mm. Now I love my mate Louis Gifford to death, eh? But you know, like us all, like us all, you know, Louis being a biologist he was, you know, loved the terms adaption and maladaption. So you go on his courses and you know you'd have a, you know five hundred adaptives and about four and a half thousand maladaptives from people who did that, particularly the early manual therapists who knew he'd spent all that lovely time with Jeff Maitland. Great stories he's told me about that. Um, you know, Louis, come back from a Louis course and he's got in adaptive and maladaptive, you know, behaviours or maladaptive and, you know, adaptive plasticity. And you, know, like, you think, Christ, well, how do you even know? <laughs> you know, and I knew that he didn't really look at things that way. I mean, you know, one of the staggering things about all the time I spent with him and the privilege of doing that, is I always sort of go, you know, sometimes when we're in Kestrel, his house in Cornwall, in Falmouth, you know, you, you'd be down there for a bit of a break and uh, or writing or we talking or whatever. And then, you know, he'd have a few patients and they're fantastic. Yeah, come here, Mickey, you know, come to my clinic. We'd sit there and just an amazing experience. But actually, a lot of people might have watched Louis and gone, hey, it's pretty hypocritical. He's now mobilising someone's back. He's manipulating neck. He's done this. He's done that. All these things that he's probably famous for telling people to move away from. And uh, and in his clinic, I don't think I ever heard him say maladaptive or adaptive once. You know, he's finding great explanations for people. And I and even I'm thinking, you know, I'm good mate and a bit of banter. You're going, oh, it's got to come out with it. You know, I've got my I've got my notebook. You can see it. And I've got two columns are pre-written with adaptive and maladaptive on there. And I'm waiting for the <laughs> number of adaptives and maladaptives to come out. And I'm hearing nothing and I'm disappointed. I've wasted a piece of paper. You know, I've got nothing to write down on my frigging piece of paper. You know, and he did you know, it was, you know, giving someone a good whack. And and you'd sort of but you'd sort of know why. And and the environment it being created. And the fact is a bit like yourself you know he, he had that he wasn't seeing the type of people who he might have to talk about to other people because he's trying to reflect what they're seeing not the type of people who brought themselves to him if that makes sense you know you you're trying to sort of give your key messages trying to think what other people who other people might be seeing but mm. your own practice is quite different to that because because he's sort of you know his family have been there set up he probably knew these people he's just as likely to get a really great crab as payment as he was <laughs> you know 25 quid um and he he knew them he trusted them they trusted him if you saw him on a one-off he hasn't taken masses of time to do the things we're advocating, but because he'd already got that, mm. you know, he got that from, from years before, yeah. but it was always great. You know, you, you know, I look at now at the books that are just next to me and you know how much attention they get. And 
you know, Filippari's wife, his lovely wife, and, and the me always say, you know, it'll become St. Louis before we know it, you know, not the place in America. But, you know, it'll be canonised by the physio professionals, as, you know, he can't do any wrong. Uh, and, and he was an amazing physiotherapist, uh, an even more amazing human being, you know, because that's what we all are after all, eh? Whatever we call ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And deeply knowledgeable and, and deeply funny and compassionate and able to laugh at himself. And, and you know, he was wrong a hell of a lot of time. And I've been on, on Twitter going, you know, he's wrong. And people think, oh, has he mixed somehow bitter or has he turned against or whatever? No. No, because <laughs> the, bloke, the bloke who's asked me many things towards the end of his life, if I would be kind enough to do and keep an eye on things and and try and keep a balance to certain things you know i open i'm i'm doing what he asked me you know and i and i know at those points when i say wait a minute you weren't always right you know he he sort of you know it's uh you know writing a book uh, and yeah, writing those books with him and uh, an amazing experience. And I read every every single word of it. You know, I've got I've got those, and um, I keep threatening, you know, with with Philippa's permission to share the drafts and our comments on them because at mm -hmm. times they were just quite amusing too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and some of the pages. Well, that, that was my ideal book writing because I didn't have my name on the front of it right? and rightly so no it's not my work um but I got to write really long footnotes <laughs> ah the long <laughs> comments yeah oh mate you know like if he'd included any of those in the book it would have just been you know those books would be instead of 450,000 words they'd be about 90 million yeah. <laughs> you know and, and most of it he just uh, used to sort of, you know delete comment you know like it just disappeared yeah fine you know it's me sort of but some of them are just comical and uh, you know but what i'm really getting at is sometimes though my job was to say no i think there is something that replaces that something that you might want to consider you know we um towards the end of Louis's life you know it's a great dynamic and it probably sound wrong on, on anything like this, but got a great love and dynamic for Philippa. She's a fantastic character uh, as anyone who knows her and a, and a strong character and deeply love Louis, but also knew not to take him seriously at times, but particularly he's buying all these books on Amazon to help finish chapters. And mm. she's, kindly pointing out well what are you going to do with all these books because you know the inevitable will happen and you know and obviously the easy answer was to give them to mickey but that wasn't going to get him any more books you know in the house so we devised a plan where because i get a lot of stick for buying a lot of books as well yeah monthly that if i bought in books i can be criticized because i'm buying books for a dying man and if he's um buying me books he can't be criticized because he's sort of being kind to his mate who's <laughs> helping him write their books you know i need to resource <laughs> these things 
should we just buy each other books and the excuse you know what do you want this week Lily? you know and then it extended from there to to cooking gadgets for, um, <laughs> for he's a massive fan of of nigella lawson and 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 as he said and there's no hidden agenda he loved the gadgets she used so suddenly i'd get a list of you know like a ratatouille maker <laughs> i couldn't think of anything or um a, a, a potato ricer i mean who needs a potato ricer who needs a potato ricer in general now alone <laughs> you know when it comes to the end of your life but it just became all consuming you know like like yeah suddenly we'd have a massive box i mean you always get a massive box from amazon eh? even though you've only got something that's one square centimeter but these boxes were actually massive and full of books and things we gave to each <laughs> other but, uh, you know it's it, it's just a fantastic experience of, of of observing someone's thinking trying to respect that thinking but occasionally occasionally saying actually i don't think you're doing yeah, the most contemporary, and 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 I think I've been on record recently on Twitter, and uh, and you know you are Manara and what you what you say, and one of my comments again, you tweet as a joke, and then you realise later that it doesn't come across like that. You know, I think I think I sort of said something like, oh, he did say, you know, old people saying, oh, Louis is the greatest physio ever, and then tongue in cheek to actually someone I know go, well, actually, I think if you read in the introduction, he says, I am, you know. <laughs> You can imagine, don't really. Yeah. It's not really funny, but but it was intended as a joke. But but the point is that we really tried to future-proof these books as well. You know, mm -hmm. we tried to make sure that they would be read, and some of that meant that we did need to change some of the models that he taught for years and that he 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 staked his reputation on. And but one of the great things is how how easy it was to change or to let someone like myself say, Louis, have you thought like this or do you want to change that? You know, I mean, he, he did very kindly sort of say, look, Mick, why don't we co-author these books? And no, that's just not going to ever happen, you know, because I don't agree with anything written in them. It's <laughs> 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 a joke. But, you know, it's a lovely offer of him and it would have been very wrong, you know, particularly... The books are very personal, as you know from reading them. They're very much about his experiences, his life, what shaped him. You know, yeah. all I could do is really try and again, yeah, sing the same song with him that that he led, and I came in. And sometimes I was allowed a little twinkle of solo without his voice being the dominant voice. You know, yeah, yeah. it's you know without him not being a dominant voice i should say rightly so so i i i do and i probably yeah this is quite top of me because this is actually probably the first time i'm talking about some of this stuff not to people like yourself you'll have been bored with this but but so that other people hear it and i'm aware they may think oh you know mick's trying to say about this book so i'm not saying that hey. you know i i played an important role which he and Philippa have, have over acknowledged um, and we know and we know the promises I made to him and, and um, you know, I spoke to him every day for nine months really writing those books every day 
for for pretty much my my entire spare time and some of my non-spare time holidays took annual leave to help him get the books finished which he didn't do sadly before he died but we did manage to subsequently get them out so Mm. yeah but that is obviously a real privilege but it's tough to talk about the process because she could sound the wrong way and it's sort of you know but i don't even know how we got here anyway well as as we said from the outset we we would definitely meander but i think that's you know that was that's a really important part of, of you know your journey was was sharing that and yeah i knew some of that we'd spoken about that before other other people who have read the books may not know that it's and and i think it's great for them to be able to hear um you know know, i i always joke that you know they read everything else but they don't read the things he writes about me you know (laughs) (laughs) which which we both yeah i'd love i'd love to be able to say that to him and for him to just smile at me with those beautiful twinkly blue eyes he had and go no it's not about you you little fat twat you know <laughs> I've done well that's the first swear word as well rich i've done bloody well so it's all right it's uh, after the watershed yeah um you know i might be sent to the shed at this moment, <laughs> but, but yeah no it's it's um yeah but but what a huge sad privilege that was to be involved in it and um you know someone who who uh, i'm on record I, I wrote it in the books actually you know i love deeply you know in in uh in a way that you're privileged to to love anyone in life you know deeply and um yeah loved him and you know i know all those people who then at that point you know go all match and go well yeah but only in a platonic way and all that <laughs> nonsense you know? no i loved another human being deeply and i'm and i'm glad that that grew out of actually i was maybe not seeing eye to eye to begin with you know mm-hmm. actually that, that, that's the best thing about that that i gave some of his work a pretty hard time at an MACP conference actually that's how we got to meet <laughs> and Philippa his um, lovely wife basically actually thought she might kill me <laughs> I survived the experience and out of that forged a pretty yeah strong friendship so yeah I miss it miss him you know I suppose he's the person who yeah you know, I could talk to many of these other people you know Laura Madej you know pick up the phone or FaceTime and we'd have a chat like we'd never been away from each other but but yeah Louis probably because he was more accessible to me being at home same timelines whatever yeah he's the one who really was was yeah mentor friend confident um someone who spent a lot of time learning from with and hopefully taught the occasional thing or two and you know mm-hmm. back to the amazon what i was saying is you know towards the end of his life it was really he got really very enthusiastic about um the work of people alvin noe mm-hmm. um kevin o'regan you know andy preliminary sort of andy work pre-predictive processing but some of his other beautiful sort of cognitive neuroscience work etc so Louis was traveling in a in a direction I'd like to think 
you know, I've continued to travel in. Um, but but I like to think I was winning there, you yeah. know, in a, in a nice <laughs> way, you know, because again, you know, Louis wasn't, but it would have been easy for him to stick with the sort of reinvention of the matrix that was the mature organism model. Yeah. Um, and and again, powerful tool, tool I've used for a number of years, still make reference to, you know, was one of his great gifts to pain management, pain medicine. But, you know, like everything else, you know, has to evolve and move on. And he, and he had started to do that. But I think, again, in the books, you know, it's a, it's a thing that even voicing it, like, made me cry. He sort of says, you know, it's been fun. Um, and I wish we had more time, you know, mm -hmm. I wish we had more time to discover some of these things together. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but we didn't, eh? You know? So, yeah. But there's a bit of, there's a bit of every day that I think about him and the conversations we might have had about the things I'm doing now and looking enough to be able to have those with many people including you good self rich and yeah immensely no it's you know it's it, it's wonderful to hear that and and i'm i know it brings up you know a lot of feeling and, and emotion but um it's uh you know it's such an important part of you and your your life and, and what's happening and what has happened and what will happen so thanks for sharing yeah. it yeah, and you know, I mean, that's that's the thing. He sort of um, maybe reminds both my wife and myself of her brother, who we also lost to prostate cancer. And if you throw Pat Wall into the equation, someone obviously very dear, someone hugely admired, became a mentor, hopefully a friend. Um, you know, died of prostate cancer. So. You know, if any of you have got a few quid listening out there and you need a charity to donate to, you know, remember, remember men and their prostate, you know? Yeah. And remember everyone else and whatever they have as well. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. Mick, it's, um, it's been brilliant to, to catch up. Uh, we, we sort of exchanged messages periodically and we were we were neighbors for a while probably didn't take enough advantage of that for on the beer no. front, but, but there we go yeah well, you I, we 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 invariably meet while i had my very vocal dog in the park oh, yes. he'd been had a busy day and i'd i'd be yeah indulging myself in one of the great pleasures of my life walking otto my dog who, mm. who i love probably more than i should um <laughs> And we'd say, beer, and then you'd say to me, yeah, I'm off the beers for a while. Oh, yeah, there was I'm that. Gonna, <laughs> I'm going to run. You know, I say, oh, where are you going to run? You go, well, I'll start today, and then I'll outrun Forrest Gump, and by about four <laughs> years' time, I'll look like Forrest Gump and run past, and then we can go for a beer. Or the irony was then you'd go, and then I'd get a phone call after you'd been Forrest Gump and you'd run everywhere, and then you'd go, beer. And, and, and invariably, it would be the time when I'm absolutely pressured for work. And I've got like a stack of things lined up. And Otto's looking at me going, don't you dare go for beer. You haven't even walked me, you bastard. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and then it's just the irony. And then and then you 
you know, emancipate yourself from middle class hell that is Long Ditton and Surbiton and go and live somewhere nice. And then and then we realise we haven't had enough beer. So when we can <laughs> travel, you know, then 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 beer will be had. But, you know, maybe really? maybe I love this sort of thing. Your listeners, Rich, might not really be interested in our beer drinking or anything. They may, they may not. They may not. They may, but it might prompt them to think, oh, I find fancy a beer now. Yeah, but you know, and, and what you've done and what you're doing for people with pain and the way that you're doing it, particularly because you know, I it's got to be said before we go, you know, you haven't always done things like that, have you? You know, you, you know, when I first met you as well, I mean, you weighed 34 stone and you drank like a fish and you ate everything inside. <laughs> Some of those things are exaggerations, Richmond's <laughs> listeners, but, you know, I don't think you were the clean living man you, you are today. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I'm not totally clean. Cleaner. We best not go there. There's yeah. always a time to stop. Yes, that's probably it. <laughs> Listen, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for um, giving up your evening and um, telling us, all your stories and, and such like. We, we may have to have a part two and three and four and, and so on and so forth. And um, I, I, I didn't time it, but I was I was trying to see how long we could go without talking about pain and things. Um, so we did pretty well. Yeah, I think, I think we've managed <laughs> to largely avoid that and predictive processing. Predictive processing, if you don't know what it is, it's a great TED talk out there. Um, yeah, I, yeah, no. I, 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 I'm grateful for you to allow me, without me knowing it, to talk about a lot of these other things that I'm passionate about and, uh, and we haven't even touched the surface about the sort of things I read about and I'm passionate about. But yeah, you know, maybe, maybe if you'll ever have me back, we can talk about some of those other things more focused about pain, but um, yeah, you know, pain pain is very important and we realize that and we've dedicated our careers to it and we will continue to do that um yeah so so at some point we might need to have a chat about it but yeah yeah just being but tonight to was spend some time with tonight it. was about about hearing your stories and i and i managed to do that so i'm i'm pleased about that and we infused it with with pain and a bit of a bit of pp but listen where if people want to listen to you or read you or, or or find your tweets where where should they go yeah twitter at d-i-b-b-y-g-i-b-b-y and everyone will say why is that well my mum's maiden name was gibson and it was a ongoing joke in my collective both sides of my family you know I was never going to be very clever because I was either a thicky thacker or a dibby gibby so it's actually a little bit of a of a you know memory for my mum so uh -huh. that's that's where it is so at dibby gibby um I I'm particularly proud of of the paper although we need to make some changes to it um that I've just finished together with Julian Kyberstein and Michael Kirkhoff, which will be out shortly. And I, if people go to my Twitter, they can sort of find a link that takes you through to the um, preview script. 
yeah. manuscript. Um, it will change before it's uh, modified, thanks to you know the comments of people who I mentioned earlier pointing a couple of things out. We will make those changes because it's absolutely the right thing to do. Um, but but uh, but if you want to know where my thinking is and what I think about pay, you know those two lovely chaps have um, allowed me to overindulge my perspectives on pain and predictive processing and they've corrected all my errors and taught me more about predictive processing um through the process and 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 yeah um corrected like i said all the things that i got wrong so that's Brilliant. a fantastic resource um ted talk is up there as well on my twitter you know it's sort of link there pin there it will go down once the paper's out the paper will sort of replace it as a play to deck out my ideas and um yeah and obviously in 42 years time you can read my book yes the four the four page one <laughs> four page with quite a few notes <laughs> brilliant brilliant yeah. listen I'll, I'll put those links on the um on the page anyway so people can yeah. click on those cool brilliant well listen thanks again mick and uh until next time yeah Au revoir. Take care. <laughs>